You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Romans 5, 1-11 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Our Old Testament text is 1 Samuel 4. Give you a second turn there. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for the thirty thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of the Lord, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line, and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. 
And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So Father, I pray now that you would take this story and tell us this story and help us to see above all else what you're like and what you do in this story. God, I pray that you would take your word and cause it to bear fruit among us. God, that we might be more faithful. We might trust in the work of Jesus more We might be more hopeful for what you're doing in the world. And God, that you would send us from this place bearing witness to our sovereign and glorious and good and terrifying God. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, It's been working our way through 1 Samuel, the early chapters of 1 Samuel. There have been two kind of fundamental streams, um, two uh, big ideas that that we have to hold together um, as we consider on these early chapters. God is doing two things at the exact same time. Um, in fact, he's doing the exact, in other words, it's not, and it's not even just, he's doing this project over here, and he's doing this project over here, but rather as he does this thing, he's also doing this thing through the exact same actions. It's like if you could build a house and a car at the same time, but not just simultaneously, but like by Beating sheetrock into a wall, you would be making a bumper. Um, And so it's both ideas happening at the exact same time. And um, I'll tell you what those ideas are. First, he is bringing horrific, awful, dark judgment against Israel and Israel's worship. He's bringing that judgment largely due to the unfaithfulness uh, of the chief priests, of, the, of the, the, the spiritual leaders of Israel, those who were to facilitate the worship of Israel. They have rebelled against God. They've begun using um, the worship of God as a means to kind of line their pockets, as a means to satisfy their own desires. Um, they, they've transformed the nature of worship and what it means for the people of God to worship in the presence of God. And so God is bringing judgment. And I'll say it again, horrific, terrifying, dark judgment. That's one thing that God is doing. And at the exact same time, in and through that judgment, he is birthing something glorious and good and just and utterly transforming what it means to be the people of God and laying the groundwork for the actual, actually laying the groundwork for the coming of Jesus and the redemption of the nations, that the whole world might belong to him. Both things at the exact same time, through the exact same events. Now, I want to give us maybe a little bit of coaching as we step into this particular story. Last week we saw that, the, that, that visions of the Lord appeared, like the Lord appeared again in Israel and at Shiloh, and he appeared again through the word of the Lord. Remember that? That was our text last week. That was the big idea from 1 Samuel 3. That was what God was kind of unfolding and beginning. There was not many visions of the Lord because there wasn't much of the word of the Lord in Shiloh. And the transformation now as Silo, as Samuel begins to take um a greater and greater role, an increasing role in what God is up to among Israelites um, is God appears again by the word of the Lord. So we reflected on the idea that we want to see God. We were made to behold him, to, to marvel at him, to be transformed by a vision, a clear vision, a biblical vision of what he's like and the only place to see him to see him as he actually is, 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 is among all of the craggy, difficult, beautiful, 
comforting and discomforting texts in the word of the Lord. Now, there's a tendency I think we have as we read the Bible, and maybe even particularly as we read the Old Testament, to think of this as merely a record of something God did back there. Rather than seeing it as a testimony to the essential character and nature of God now. See the difference? We, we tend to think of human beings as, rightly so, as developing, growing, changing. So you might hear a story about me when I was six, trying to think of something I did when I was six, doing something dumb, like lots of six-year-olds, and then think, well, that's just what Brian did. That's not necessarily essential to his character, although some of you might argue that whatever I did when I was six that was dumb is clearly evident in my continuing character today as a person. But, but, but you, you would hear about that and laugh, and we laugh at those stories, um, but then you arrive at who is the person standing in front of you today. So we tend to think of God oftentimes in those kind of anthropomorphic categories. So we think of God as doing certain kinds of things back then, but oh, thank goodness, he's grown up since then. In his old age, he's matured, and he doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. And that would be the wrong thing to take away from 1 Samuel or any text in the Bible. They reveal to us the essential character of who God is always, for all time. And this is actually one of the most marvelous things to consider about God. He never grows. He never develops. He never becomes more mature. Like, he is in, in his essential nature and character who he is is who he has always been and who he will always be. You, you can rest on that. And in the midst of a culture and a history that has forever been changing um, in, in its views of morality and ethics and what is true and what is just and, and how we should live in the world, um, in a world that seems to constantly be spinning and maybe in a particular moment in our culture's history in which it feels like things are convulsing even more, here is the precious and glorious and comforting, and I say sometimes discomforting, but but. Maybe most of all in this moment, it's comforting, the, the, the precious reality that what you read about the character and the nature of God in this book does not change. Like, he doesn't change his mind. And there are Christians and there are churches that will tell you he's changed his mind. He's developed on, on this, on the relationship between um, husband and wife. He's developed more. He's more broad-minded now about what is right and wrong in sexuality. He's kind of grown. He, he has kind of a, a better understanding now that we don't need to think about the atonement or the wrath of God. Those are the seeds of a convulsive understanding of God and therefore a convulsive understanding of life, um, a convulsive and ever-changing and ever-evolving understanding of morality and ethics and truth. Such that nothing is concrete, concrete. Nothing can be rested in and trusted. And then a life built on it. That's not what God gives us. He gives us a vision of who he is, not simply who he was. Who he is and who he will always be. If that was your... That was your free coaching. Also could be known as sermon number one. Now sermon number two. We get to 1 Samuel 4. And I want to first, I want us to walk through this story. Then I want to, I want to make five observations 
and then close with what I think the main idea in this text is, particularly as we head into chapter 5, which is one of the most fun chapters in all of Samuel next week. So first, let's talk about the story. Verse 1 opens strangely. Not strangely um, in that it's attached to the end of chapter 3, um, and, but, but very strangely in terms of how it's attached to chapter 4 um, and verse 1 kind of serves as a bridge uh, between the action that unfolds, the transformation that unfolds at the end of chapter 3 with the, the, the word of the Lord coming is being revealed through Samuel. It begins by saying, and the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. So so the progression from three into four, we really need to kind of start on the other side of the bridge, walk over the bridge of verse one to then jump into the action of chapter four. Um, The the idea is um, the Lord appears again. He he hasn't been seen for a while. He appears again at Shiloh, the the center of worship for Israel. He appears himself particularly, he appears again particularly to Samuel by the word of the Lord. So Samuel now is seeing God by and through his word. And then the text tells us, and this word that Samuel now has goes from Samuel to all of Israel. This is really important. It's really important because it can get lost in the darkness, the dark forest we're at to step into in the rest of chapter 4. And it's significant because of this. Even as Israel faces devastating judgment, not just the the death of of 34,000 Israelites, Israelite men, not only the death of 34,000 Israelite men, not only the capture of the ark, so that the, the, the very sign and sign of God's presence in the midst of his people departs from Israel, but also the, the collapse of their only mechanism of being reconciled to God. That's the significant of what un, significance of what unfolds in chapter four. Like how do I be reconciled to God? How do I learn the word of the Lord? How do I understand how I'm supposed to live in the world? How do I receive and cling to the promises of God? All of that flows through the tabernacle, through the, the priests that facilitated the worship of God's people in the tabernacle. And chapter four is the complete destruction of that in Israel. So don't think of that as if merely this week I die and someone bulldozes this building. Like you could still go somewhere else, gather in the name of Jesus, trusting in the work of Jesus as the means by which we're reconciled to God, made whole with God. Like that doesn't go away. If I die, all of our elders die, and the building collapses. Maybe we're in here dancing a jig, structural integrity comes into question at a really bad moment, and we all die. Like you, you might read chapter 4 and think, oh, I mean, that'd be bad. But we could still gather and pray, mourn, and know that we have access to God through the work of Jesus. In Israel, in this moment in history, your access to God is facilitated through the worship that takes place in the tabernacle. And the work of the priests and the sacrifices. So for that to stop, for that to end, for that to collapse, that is a, a breakdown in the whole relation, covenantal relationship between the people of God and God himself. So that's the darkness that unfolds in chapter 4. But it's led with, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. God still 
in the midst of what appears to be complete and utter ruin and loss, God is still right there planting a seed. The seed that will bring renewal, the seed that will give rise to the coming of the king, the seed that will give rise to the coming of a temple, and ultimately a temple that will be replaced with a temple built without hands that will fill the whole earth, namely the church. The king who um, becomes the, the reflection or, or the kind of the down payment on or the shadow um, of which Christ himself is the substance. So in the midst of the darkness that we're about to reflect on, Samuel tells, or the author of Samuel tells us the word of God given to Samuel is being delivered, being planted. It's spreading in the midst of all of this darkness. Come back to that idea in the end because there's something else for us to see about that. So, so second, um, Israel and the Philistines are at war again. Um, uh, they have been at war throughout um, the period of the judges. Um, and now when we get to First Samuel, it's just happening again. Um, and generally the pattern that unfolded in judges is Israel um, um, would be worshiping God, they'd be faithful to God, then they would turn away from God, they would, uh, it would begin to transform the nature of their worship, they'd begin to kind of integrate idolatry into their worship, um, and so then God would bring judgment, he would always bring judgment through the Philistines, Philistines would come in, tax them, the Philistines then would come in and kill them, Philistines would come and enslave them, um, and then uh, Israel um, would cry out to the Lord, the Lord would raise up a judge, and that judge would then go to war with the Philistines, defeat the Philistines, then Israel will be really, really happy again for about three seconds. And they'd turn away again, and then the Philistines would come again, and then they'd cry out to God again, and then God would raise up a judge again, and then that judge would go to war with the Philistines, and God, through this judge, would conquer the Philistines, and then Israel would be happy, and they'd be content, and they would worship God faithfully again for about three seconds. So that happens again and again and again, and now we arrive in chapter 4. And it appears that that now is happening again. Um, when you get timelines kind of worked out with Samuel and with this battle, the battle of Ebenezer, um, and, and the, uh, the work of um, Samson, I mean, you start lining up when all of this is unfolding. Um, there's a number of scholars that believe that this, this battle actually ensues um, because of, uh, you know, the story of Samson. He's blind, his hair grows out again, and he pushes and destroys kind of um, the, the leadership of Philistia. Um, and so this is Israel, they think, like taking the initiative and saying, hey, look what just happened through Samson. Now let's go get him. Um, and so they encamp and go out to battle. Because even the text there in verse 1 says, Israel goes out, went out to battle against Philistines. Um, that language seems to indicate that Israel's initiating this battle. Um, so they're at war again. Um, their first battle takes all of a verse and a half. It says, they encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So it's a two-stage battle. Stage one, they gather, they fight. 4,000 Israelites are killed. They're defeated. So then they go back to their camp. Philistines go back to their camp. And I want you to take note of the question that's asked because it's a peculiar question in verse 3. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? See that. Not, why did the Lord not help us against the Philistines? Not, why did the Philistines whoop us? Look at it. Why has the Lord, there's your subject, defeated, there's your verb, us, object of the verb. I have a fourth grade teaching wife. so I learned grammar a lot. Who's the actor here? 
Is it the Philistines? No, it's God, the Lord. What did the Lord do? The Lord defeated. Who did he defeat? Us. This is important for a couple of reasons. The main thing I want to hold out to you now, we'll get to, get to this more in our observations, is that this text is emphasizing what God is up to in the midst of this. Even the Israelites who are facing imminent judgment and destruction have enough wherewithal in that moment to recognize they're not fighting the Philistines. They're fighting God. God has gone to war with them. Which is to say, God is a God who makes war on peoples, on cultures. Which is a terrifying thought. So, you have this terrifying thought. What do you do? Somebody says, I know. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Notice the impersonal language. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it... Or he may save us, may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So they say, we're losing. The Lord seems himself to be fighting against us. What should we do? How do we change the situation here? I know. Somebody go get the Ark of the Covenant. Bring that out into the midst of our camp. As it comes, then God will stop fighting against us because we have this really pretty box. He will stop fighting against us because we have this great symbol that he's among us. Maybe he's confused. Maybe he forgot which team he was supposed to fight for. We bring that. It'll be a reminder to God. God will save us. From the Philistines. So they go get the ark. They bring it. And they shout really loud. They're really fired up now. We have the ark. Rawr. So the earth shakes. Philistines hear it. The Philistines hear the noise. They're terrified. Absolutely terrified. They say, woe to us. Now this God, this God who struck down the Egyptians. I mean, the Egyptians at that time kind of the powerhouse of the day, struck down the Egyptians. Um, uh, th- this, is, this is nuts. We're doomed. Everybody, fight like men so they don't become slaves to the Hebrews in the way that the Hebrews have been slaves to us. And then in the most melodramatic description possible, in verse 10, it says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So, the battle goes poorly, even with the ark, and Philistia, the Philistines gather and steal the ark away. Then verses 12 through 22 give us the fallout from this. People mourn, messengers sent, the people hear what happens, they mourn. And Eli, who is fat and old, that's just a fun description. Fat and old, falls over, breaks his neck and dies. Phineas' wife gives birth to a son. She dies. Before she dies, she names her son. The glory has departed. The glory has gone into exile. Same translation, same word. So that's the story. 
It's not a very happy story. God destroys the Israelites fighting against them. The Ark of the Covenant is taken from the people of God. The high priest and his sons, judge of the day, dies. And they die. Listen, ending that particular dispensation, that particular means by which the people of God approached God and the glory itself, the glory of the presence of God, the blessing of God, the mercy of God upon his people departs. I want to begin our observations, which will be quick, by just reflecting a moment on how devastating it is Say, the glory has departed. The presence of God has departed. The worship of Yahweh has ended. Every culture in the history of the world, prior to the arrival of Christianity, it can largely be described as a series of repeating patterns of tyranny and brutality and death. The Romans were just one. If you study the history of the continent of Europe, if you study the history of the continent of Africa, if you study the history of the continent of Asia, what you find there prior to the arrival of the, um, the locus of the very glory of God and majesty of God and beauty of God in and through the church's confession of and worship of God in and through the gospel, uh, prior to that arrival, if you look at anywhere in the history of the world, what you will find is genocidal ter- tyranny, destruction, darkness, And then the light of the gospel comes. The people of God begin to gather in everywhere. Worshiping and glorying the name of Jesus. Living in light of his word. And then comes order and freedom and joy. That is, in fact, the history of Western civilization, but really not just Western civilization, but the whole history of the world. And when the glory departs, you look at the history of places where the church has been snuffed out, darkness returns. Tyranny returns. Genocide returns. There is... At the heart of this text, in the telling of the story of Israel, a a, a weightiness that I want us to see. The worship of God, the presence of God in the midst of a people gathered in his name, gathered in the name of grace and glory and beauty, um, is not just for your own and my own kind of sentimental personal well-being. It actually has direct and glorious historical ramifications for societies and cultures and cities and neighborhoods and governments and business everywhere it goes. And then when it's silenced, but when maybe it's pushed online, the ramifications are not small. They're devastating. For the voice of the Lord to be silenced or diminished, for the presence of the Lord in the worship of God's people, but for that to be stopped, Is, is and has been the starting and the stopping of the gathering of God's people in the midst of even overwhelmingly unbelieving cultures has either, has either brought life, glory, beauty, freedom, 
or in its absence has brought tyranny and death and the, the, the destruction of the very foundations of what it takes for people to just live and function together in a society. It's when you see the, the, the ark of the Lord gone and you see the, the, the family, the, the means by which the actual worship of Yahweh continued and happened and the, the means by which, the main means by which Samuel hasn't, he hasn't become a judge, he hasn't become a high priest, he's just, um, he, he's become a prophet who, who delivers the word of the Lord um, but, but the fundamental means that God had put in place, the mechanism for Israel to worship, to be reconciled to God, to learn of her forgiveness, um, to learn again of the law of God and to live in light of that law and to know the presence of the Lord. When all of that ceases, we're not just talking about a religious shift. We're talking about the, the unraveling of society itself in Israel. Second observation. This, this is tied to you must see God. Not merely your idea of God, not merely your neighbor's idea of God, not merely um, an emotionally satisfying vision of God, um, but, but you must see God for who he is. His judgments are terrible. They're terrible. And, and you should figure out how to avoid them. Might be an obvious observation. Um, one of the things that jumped out at me in, in the text is um, one of the themes that kind of develops across First and Second Samuel is um, how different figures um, in First and Second Samuel, the, the most prominent ones being Saul and David, but it also happens here with Eli, um, how they respond to a word of judgment from God. So you have Saul, um, a word of judgment is pronounced against him and his kingdom. Um, and instead of, of hearing that word, he, he simply seeks to justify himself. He, he begins to argue, he begins to try to manipulate God and try to make God do what he wants. Um, whereas David receives a word of judgment, what does he do? He tears his clothes, he falls on his face, and he cries out for the mercy of God. And he receives it. Still has to go through pain, there's still judgment that comes to his house, but, but he receives mercy. Even at the very end of 2 Samuel, um, he, he orders a census. That census um, is then uh, the catalyst by which God begins to bring judgment against Israel. He cries out for and expresses um, his dependence on the mercy of God. He receives it. So, so you have Saul doesn't ask for mercy, doesn't confess his sins, seeks to justify himself proudly in the presence of God, destroyed. See, David, confronted with sin, in some ways, at least at a surface level, sins that appear to be far, far worse than Saul's. He cries out to God for mercy, and he gives it. So then it, it dawns on me, I'm kind of knowing that's coming. When you look at Eli, a word of judgment comes against Eli and Eli's family. Do you remember what he said in the face of this judgment? It sounds really pious. But when you contrast it with, with, with David, you, you see the weakness of the response. He essentially says, whatever the Lord says is right. It's an apathetic response. He hears of the judgment of God Terrible judgment coming against him and his sons. He doesn't fall on his face and tear his robes and plead with God to have mercy on me and have mercy on my children. He doesn't fall on his face and, and go to the God of all mercy and ask for mercy. He doesn't go to the God of, of, of holiness and plead with him. Have mercy on me in my house and then turn and repent of his sin and how he fathered his sons and how he conducted things in the tabernacle. He just says, if it is, it is. If this is what God wants, then okay. 
judgments of God are terrible. But that should not lead us to mere passivity. And it also should not lead us to harden our hearts in the face of difficulty and darkness. It should lead us to submit ourselves before the word of the Lord and to ask, to plead for grace. To cling to a text, like in 1 John 1, where it says, he is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Judgments of God are terrible. They should drive us to, to, to not face them. To plead with God for his kindness and his mercy. Because one of the fundamental testimonies of scripture is he is merciful. It's essential to his character and nature. His judgments are terrible and powerful and dark. But oh, um, in the face of the coming of those judgments, in the warning of those judgments, if you will but plead with him on the basis of the work of Jesus, oh my Lord and my God, have mercy on me. He promises. Think about that. It's not like Islam where he might be merciful Who knows? It is a promise given. And it is a justified promise. Because justice, even his justice won't be called into question when he forgives your sins. So his judgments are terrible and dark and devastating. They are severe But his mercy is precious and good and should drive us to submit to him, to bow to him, to plead on the basis of the work of Jesus for his kindness. Something we've already pointed out. Folks, this text is not the defeat of God. If you, if you were to look at this historically from the outside, if you were to look at this um, within the common kind, of, uh, common kind of framework of the nations, um, including how Israel herself thought, um, you might look at this story and think that the, the point of this story is that God is defeated. Like Israel didn't believe enough or they weren't doing the right sacrifices enough. And so God himself goes into battle and because he didn't have those sacrifices, because he didn't have that good behavior, he's not strong enough and so he can't, Defeat Dagon and the Philistine, um, the Philistine army, and so God Himself is defeated. That that is um, how we think often about how the work of God works in the world. Society seems to be unraveling. Um, God Himself doesn't He doesn't seem to be powerful enough to overcome the um, the influx and the devastation of secular modernism. Um, uh, therefore, uh, the people of God aren't praying enough, or we're not um, uh, we're not getting the sacrifices in order enough, or we're not um, we're not uh, we're not doing the right stuff in the right order. And if we could just do that, then God would be more powerful, and then He would conquer His enemies. It's not the point of this text. That's not how God works. You see in this text, it points, it points to the reality that God himself is at war with Israel. God doesn't need your good works to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need your faithfulness to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need your strength to accomplish his purposes. Um, he doesn't need your own self-righteousness to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't, need, um, uh, the, um, the, he doesn't need the vitality and health of your family to accomplish his purposes. He, he doesn't need us to get worship just right for him to accomplish his purposes. Um, he does what he chooses and wills to do. And nothing will stop him. Even if he has to go to war with you. You see, the main point of this text is in in the face of apparent defeat and destruction and devastation, God is winning. God is doing exactly what he wants to do. 
exactly what he intends to do, right in the midst of the darkness, right through the darkness, right in, in the face of, of this devastation, it is in fact God who is bringing this devastation, God who is bringing this judgment so that he might do something completely marvelous. So when you face dark seasons, when you face what appears to be devastation, when we collectively look out at the world and look at our society and think, man, if we could just be stronger, then God uh, God could finally do what he wants to do. Do you realize that right now, right now, God is doing exactly what he wants to do? He is not standing by and waiting for us to man up and get stronger or more politically organized or better at worship. His judgments are dark, his blessings are rich. And many times, many times, and this is one of those times, even as he brings darkness and judgment, he is in precisely that darkness and judgment bringing life and something glorious and new. Do not misunderstand the last three years. In the chaos and the darkness and the confusion and the anxiety and the division and the pain and the, uh, the, the insanity of, of certain laws being passed and the insanity of what seems to be happening all over the West as our inheritance is squandered, it is the judgment of God and the work of God to accomplish his purposes and establish something that cannot be shaken. Do not use God. He will not be used by you. He's not a talisman. He's not a genie. He is the sovereign God of the universe and he is on his throne. He does not share it. He does not bend it to you and I's whims. He rules over all things to accomplish his purposes in all things and his, according to his purposes and his promises and his, and his law and his intention to fill the world with glory and beauty and worship. Do not use him as Israel uses the ark as, a, as, as an attempt to twist God's arm. Surely if the ark is here, God won't make war on us. Well, he did. It went from 4,000 dead to 30,000 dead. So I want you to see this in closing. What is God doing in this? The collapse of worship in Israel. Um, the, the devastation of losing 30,000 men, 34,000 men. The devastation in the loss of Eli and his family. What is God doing? Because we know that God is doing something. Remember verse 1. Even in the midst of this darkness um, coming over all of Israel, um, such that, that um, uh, the... Phineas' wife would say in summary of what's taking place in Israel, the glory. God and his weight and his majesty has left us. He has gone into exile. He's gone. What is God doing? He's uprooting unfaithfulness. He's destroying one age in order through the seed of his word to establish a new one. He's destroying one mode to establish a better one. He's destroying one approach to establish, in fact, his kingdom. A kingdom where Israel is restored. Where their, witness, their witness to the nations becomes clearer. 
where um, the, the, the actual trunk of the tree that, that is and will be Jesus himself um, is established. The roots there are established. The last thing I want you to see will become even clearer next week. The, the, the high point of judgment against Israel as, as promised in God's law if they rebelled against God, if they refused to worship God, if they were led by corrupt priests and judges, is that they as a people would go into exile, that they would be um, dragged out of the land and sent to serve other masters. Who's dragged away in this text? Not Israel. The glory. See, that's the spin at the end of the story. The grace at the heart of this darkness. Israel is not taken at the end of spears out of the land that God would give them. They're not dragged off to serve other gods. They're not dragged off to be slaves. Rather, the very presence and glory and majesty of God himself is taken by the Philistines, as we'll see at the beginning of the next text, set beside Dagon as a handmaiden, as a hand servant to the Philistine gods. There's a lot of pain and darkness in this text, but it wasn't what it could be. Because we worship a God that from the very beginning is a God who insists on standing in our place. You see, Jesus Christ came. And rather than us knowing the eternal exile of hell and judgment and wrath, rather than us knowing the eternal judgment and exile of, 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 of being on the wrong side of God's purposes um, and becoming a, a footnote, an example of his justice to destroy sin forever and ever and ever, Jesus Christ comes and stands in our place. He is dragged out of the city into exile, hung on a cross, and goes into the very exile of death that you and I won't have to. And even here, all the way back in 1 Samuel 4, we find a God willing to go, who does go, who sends himself into exile in place of his people. Let's pray.